Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, we'll look at verses 35 and 36 this morning. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts this morning to Your Word. Let Your Spirit speak more loudly than the preacher. Let Your Word divide us more sharply than any word that can be spoken aloud. We look to encounter You. We bow before You. And so God, teach us. Lead us. And show us the way in which we should go. It is in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Today, out of these verses, I'd like to focus our attention on verse 35 for the time we have today. And really not even the whole of verse 35. We looked at the context of those offerings and the thanksgiving that the returned exiles had offered. We looked at that last week. Today I would like to focus our attention on one particular phrase. And that is, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles. In the context of the entire book of Ezra, this phrase looks unremarkable. Simply a description of those who had returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Indeed, the entire book of Ezra can be summarized as dealing with the end of the exile and the return of the Jews from captivity. But I ask you to recall that there were in Ezra two separate returns. One is described in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, and that was the first return under Zerubbabel when the bulk of the Jews who would return journeyed back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then there was Ezra's return, chronicled in chapters 7 to 10. It's the second return of those who uh, who accompanied Ezra's call to return. And it is the context of today's verse, the context of the second return. And And in the entire chronicle of Ezra's mission... This is the first, it is indeed the only time, this second group is described as returning exiles from captivity. And if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense that this second group would be categorized either as exiles or as captives. After all, their families had been permitted to return to the land of Israel for 80 years prior to Ezra organizing this caravan. Eighty years, their family and they had every opportunity to return to Jerusalem. 
Cyrus passed an edict in 538 B.C. that allowed any Jew who wished to return to Jerusalem to do so. King Darius had reissued the exact same order when he was asked about it. But Ezra's journey began in 458 B.C. 80 years. And for 80 years, everyone in Ezra's, in the group that returned with Ezra, and in the subsequent return of Nebuchadnezzar, or return of Nehemiah, 13 years later, every single person had for 80 years had permission to return from the king of Persia. That certainly doesn't describe the realities of what we might consider exile or captivity. The people weren't held there. They weren't forced into labor like the Israelites had been in Egypt from the time of Joseph to the time of Moses. They weren't oppressed like they were in the days of the judges or in the time of Saul or David by the Philistines or by other enemies. The sad truth that we shall see in even larger context in the next chapters of Ezra is that these captives were captivated by choice. They chose to remain in captivity. They chose to remain in Babylonia for all those extra years. And rather than living in oppression, they lived in relative comfort. They established houses. They built businesses. They were quite comfortable in a land that God had not called them to. Instead of embracing the freedom that God had provided, even when He provided it at exactly the time He said He would, they were captivated by the life that did not hold God's promises. Brothers and sisters, does this describe our lives? Have we allowed or are you allowing yourself to be taken captive by something other than the grace of God? Captivity comes in many forms and the warnings about each of these forms permeates the Scripture. It's not simply one power that wishes to re-enslave you. They are many, and we must be on our guard at all times. The first and possibly most obvious power that would enslave you is your own sin. Peter, in his first epistle, warns his flock in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Those passions of the flesh would capture you. They would captivate you. They would take you in and hold you. Your sins, those passions of the flesh, are the deadliest enemies that are trying to ensnare you. They will destroy you. And they are certainly strong enough to pull you away from the sanctification God is working to accomplish in you. If you are in Christ, that sin, those temptations are simply not who you are anymore. 
Romans chapter 6 verse 2 says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? So how can we keep returning to those sins? Now we may claim we're weak. We may claim that we're easily tempted. And so we are. But the truth is that there's a difference between an occasional, even an accidental sin and a habit. There is a difference between stepping in a puddle or diving in head first. There's a difference between us as former slaves to sin, meeting temptation along the way, and running back to it and embracing it. How many of the sins in your life keep calling you back and you keep running to them? How many sins do you consider your happy little secret instead of your mortal enemy? How many times have you run into them knowing that you would ask God to forgive you later for them? In so many things, we're like the Israelites who had followed Moses out of Egypt, going toward the promised land. We complain about how hard it is to follow God's path, and we think how nice that captivity was. We see them reminiscing in Numbers 11, beginning in verse 4, where it says, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, ah, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. God was providing them food from heaven, food without cost, Every single day, and still they dreamed, they wept about going back into slavery in Egypt. They looked back at that captivity and said, I wish I was back there. Remember the fish. Is that slavery to sin really so good that you would forfeit? eternal life, that you would forfeit God's promise. Because no matter how nice or pleasant or euphoric that sin makes you feel, it is temporary. Trading eternal life to practice sin or to practice your addiction is no better than Esau who traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. He was hungry the next day too. In Genesis 25, beginning in verse 29, we see the incident. He said, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. 
And this is the comment of Moses. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That sin you are toying with is your enemy. It will destroy you if it can. It is not something that you can play with. It's not something that you can hide. It is not something you can coddle, that you can keep in the closet, that you can keep under wraps. It is killing you. John Owen, in his masterwork, The Mortification of Sin and Believers, says it this way, Take heed, this is thy lust. This is that thy lust is working toward. The hardening of the heart, searing of the conscience, blinding of the mind, stupefying of the affections, and deceiving the whole soul. If you insist on returning to your sin, you put your soul in grave danger. And none of us Returning to that sin should dare to stand against that statement on the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's not because we can't rely on that doctrine. It is because if we have habitually returned to that sin, returned to our sin, returned to that former master, allowing ourselves to be enslaved again, we cannot have a genuine assurance that we are saints. What evidence will you bring that you belong to Jesus Christ? Will you bring the attitudes or intentions of your heart? Would that be the same heart that is choosing to abandon the Lord for the sake of passing pleasures? In John chapter 8 verse 31 and following, we are told that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, that's an important thing. He is talking to Jews who had believed what He had just said. He says, if you abide in My Word and you are truly My disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. But listen to these people who had just a moment before believed Him. They they answered Him and they say, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And he goes on to tell them, these people who had just believed what he was saying, that just believed that he might be the Messiah, he looks them in the eye in John 8, 45, and says, I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Their heart was led astray. They wouldn't let go of their sin. They didn't believe. Any assurance that we think we have, any proofs that we think we have been given are unreliable if we have abandoned our Savior and returned to our captivity. 
in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. We see the command in regard to a Hebrew slave that has been granted his freedom. God tells us, if He says to you, I will not go out from you because He loves you and your household since He is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through His ear into the door and He shall be your slave forever. Do you love your sin so much that you would forever forfeit life and grace and freedom in Jesus Christ. I realize it's a jarring use of this passage, particularly one that talks about the idea of loving the master and the family. But if we love our sin more than we love Christ, if we love sin more than the freedom that God has provided, how much different are we than that slave who returned to his former master, even though he had been freed? I see the same teaching in a passage we often skip past when we read the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. We hear the writer of Hebrews say, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. Is that saying anything different than the Deuteronomy passage? You were offered your freedom. You knew precisely what it entailed. You chose instead to return to that old master. And there you were in grave peril of remaining. There is only one place all this leads leads us. Repent. Repent means to turn around, to go in the other direction. It means I'm walking in this direction and then I turn around and walk in exactly the opposite direction. It means abandoning your sin, killing it within your body rather than hosting it. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says, If you will live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In that commentary, the mortification of sin that I mentioned earlier, John Owen makes this statement that we all do well to heed. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. I would add to this that today is the day to repent. Not tomorrow, not eventually. Not I'll get it all together someday. Today is the day that you make the choice. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and following say, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. It's the very thing He warns us about in three chapters later. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We share in Christ if we persevere. As it is said today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. You can't afford another day of holding on to your sin. You can't afford another day of walking back to that old master. This message is for the believer as much as it is for the unconverted. Because we would all be led astray if we go back to where we came from. The people in Ezra's day held on to 80 years of extra captivity. But the good news is that some of them repented. They made the journey. They returned from the exile. They obeyed the command of God to return to the land of promise. And repentance is not far from you either. Jesus Christ came and endured crucifixion to bring you to repentance. To bring you into salvation. To free you from the slavery to sin. Jesus told a parable to describe His joy at the repentance of one who is freed from sin. In Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 8, He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And so now, today, and from this moment on, let us seek Christ and not seek to go back to where we were. Let us never look at the sins of the world and say, ah, that would be so fun. Or I remember the days. Set our minds on the things above where God dwells and not on the things below. To serve the Creator rather than the creature. Romans 6.19 says, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. If there's sin in your life, repent. If there is sin that has been dragging you down, that you've kept looking at, that you think you've kept hidden, Repent. Today, 
is the day you can be freed from that. Let's pray. Our Father, You didn't save us just to clean us up so we can run back to our old master. You raised us. No longer corpses, but living beings. No longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but alive together with Christ Jesus. God, let us live as your people in this world. To reject temptation, not because it earns us salvation, but because we have received such a great salvation. To reject it, because that's not what God's people do. That is not what pleases our Heavenly Father. You have saved us to bring to Yourself a people, to bring to Your Son a bride that is pure, that is made holy, set apart, that is alive with the Spirit You have given us. We thank you. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our only hope in life and in death, we pray. Amen.